0: This episode is sponsored by the McCormick Center for Early Childhood Leadership at National Lewis University in Chicago. The center has this slogan Improving Outcomes for Children, one leader at a time. Go to their webpage to find information about them. Just Google McCormick Center for Early Childhood Leadership at National Lewis University. Welcome to the podcast research in leadership in schools, early childhood settings and social care settings. My name is Johannes Miesker. I am an assistant professor in the area of leadership in schools, early childhood settings and social care settings in the University of the Faroe Islands at the Department of Education. You maybe wonder where are the Faroe Islands. The Faroe Islands are located between Iceland, Scotland and Norway. It's a very beautiful country and you should actually seriously think about coming here to see the nature, experience the unique culture and the traditions we have here. Well anyway, let's go to the podcast of today, which is an interview that I have conducted with a researcher in the area of leadership. So I am here at Wheaton College, close to Chicago, and with me is Jonathan Eckert. He's a professor at Wheaton, and soon he will be moving to Baylor University in Texas. And first of all, welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks for having me and we are going to talk about a book that you published in 2018 Uh, the book is called leading together teachers and administrators improving student outcomes what is uh, kind of the main message of this book
1: basically the best way to move forward the only way to really improve schools is for teachers and administrators to do the work that needs to be done and so the way we define collective leadership which is really the operating term in the book is that it's the work that's done toward shared goals. And so that necessarily means teachers have to be doing that work in schools with the support, uh, encouragement and alongside administrators. And so we highlighted places where that's happening around the U.S. in rural, suburban and urban areas. And when you say we, who is we? So this started off as work with Mark Smiley. He was at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He's professor emeritus there. We started working on this about five years ago, looking at collective leadership as a way to improve schools. He'd done a lot of work in school leadership for many years, and this was an idea that we had to start trying to find it taking place uh, in the United States. So we used the University of Chicago uh, survey tool that measures conditions in schools and identified uh, three schools that were average to a Above average on the key measures that we were looking at, and then went out and looked at those. So he kind of laid the groundwork with me for what the book would be, and then he's like, yep, now you go do it. So the we started off as we, and then it was my marching orders to put together the book. And so that's the we that's there. And it was also done in collaboration with the Center for Teaching Quality, the the original work, uh, which the foreword's written by Barnett Berry, who's the president and founder of the Center for Teaching Quality. And,
0: and, and as you say, kind of the central term is collective leadership. And when I think maybe from a European uh, perspective, kind of maybe more people nowadays talk about distributed leadership and they talk about organizational structures like PLC and professional learning networks. And maybe uh, collective leadership can seen as a bit old fashioned, but why have you chosen to stick to the term collective leadership?
1: That's interesting. Uh, So I have found distributed leadership to be problematic. It's not that dissimilar. There's shared leadership, distributed leadership. There's all different ways you can refer to it. In the United States, collective leadership has not been a a phrase that's been used very extensively. The problem I have with distributed leadership is it sounds as if there is a leader who is distributing tasks to others to be done and delegating, and that's not what what I mean by sharing the work. Uh, It's not for a principal to delegate or distribute work, it's for the leadership work to bubble up from the classroom, be identified by teachers, and then that drives what the school does. And so in that sense, it's collective. It's something that's done as a whole. Um, So it's an interesting take um, that in Europe, this would be seen as a term that's kind of out of fashion at this point. And maybe it just never bubbled up in the literature in the United States in the same way it did in the US but you know you could call it shared leadership uh, distributed leadership the only problem I have with that is the connotation that someone's delegating out from there but yeah it's a similar idea
0: and then in this book you have I think there are three examples so it's like one rural school and one suburban school and one urban school is is it uh, different uh, having the collective leadership in in kind of these three settings or do they play out in the same way?
1: Yeah. So I'll give you three quick vignettes uh, from the book that are from the places that give you a sense of how collective leadership works. So if we start in the rural school. It's about 450 students, 26 full-time teachers. Um, they have six of those 26 are nationally board certified, which is the highest level of certification we can get in the United States. And two of them were up for state teacher of the year. As fi- They were finalists. So really high capacity teachers in the building and a principal that acknowledges that the strength of the school is there and so then allows the ideas to bubble up from the classroom and that actually extends to the district office level uh, where in that rural district, the superintendent's office sits in a trailer, uh, like a double-wide trailer, in the parking lot of the high school because they didn't want to put any resources into a nice district office, they pump it all into the schools. So their collective leadership looks like, if you have an idea, (laughs) The the principal and superintendent do whatever they can to try to help support it and you run with it because there's nobody else to delegate it to. Um, So that's one version. Then the suburban school, um, a lot more resources, a lot more teachers, it's over a 2,000 student high school, you have well over 100 faculty members, uh, and you have a principal who had been in the school for almost 20 years before he became principal. So he was well known, um, really respected by the teachers. He kind of knew where to push and prod and pull and encourage. And one example there of his leadership, the first day he started, it was in August, and the teachers were having an in-service day and the only students that were around were athletes and musicians who were there getting ready for band and football and and different sports. So he got all of those students lining the hallways from the front door to the cafeteria where the teachers met and had them cheering and clapping for all the teachers as they came in as almost like a pep rally to start the year as an encouragement that they were going to be doing the leadership and work of the school year. And a number of teachers three years later would talk about that and they would tear up from what that meant. So the, the super like supportive principal, it was just kind of a cheerleader, they do use PLCs extensively there, unlike the rural school, which was too small to have PLCs with people with common jobs where they could do stuff together. At the suburban school, the PLCs were where they were doing most of their leadership development, and they were pretty powerful. The urban school uh, was really interesting because I guess now it would be nine years ago, Um, All 13 of the administrators in the building got fired in February, and they had to work out their contract. In the United States, you have to have notice of termination, but then you have to finish your contract. So they had to be told by March 1st, and they had to work through June to fulfill their contracts. So that got to be a pretty toxic uh, place. The um, man I was interviewing about this, he had been an elementary principal in the district for a number of years and had a son at the school at the time, and he had a couple thoughts. One, maybe that needed to happen, that they needed to fire the administrators, and two, he felt bad for whoever was gonna be tapped to take over that weekend. He gets a call from the superintendent asking him to take over as principal, and he got to hire nine administrators. So he lost three administrators uh, and started with a team of 10. It's about 2,000 students again. And he had a lot of work to build up the trust of faculty after what had happened. And so I interviewed him seven years after this had taken place and interviewed a lot of the teachers. And a lot of their work was just rebuilding relational trust. So the collective leadership there just looked like rudimentary, let's go back and start from scratch and try to build some trusting relationships. So those are three different versions. Very different places, but collective leadership was important in all three. But but the example from the first school could that just as well have happened in the last school the urban uh, urban and rural school comparison um, i I don't know so I mean the rural school operated very differently because there was a lot of teacher autonomy. I don't think that existed in the urban school um, either before the administrative team was fired or after. There was a lot of distrust there. The difference between the rural and the urban school was the level of trust. So you'll see in some of the subsequent papers from this book, the comparison of different, these seven conditions that support leadership development. The rural school was much higher in some areas than the urban school. The urban school had a few advantages, but the rural school had some big advantages, and largely it was in the human capacity that they had in the building and the level of trust between teachers. So I don't know if the same thing could have happened both places, but they certainly needed that supportive administration and a vision for what it could be to move forward. And as I understand
0: it, you you look um a lot of uh, how, how leadership is actually happening in practice, so it's it's not about only the leader having some strategic goals and doing his own job but it's about the principal looking at where is actually leadership happening at the moment and then to interact with uh, those who are doing um, that leadership uh, and yeah and then I'm thinking uh, I know you have these three settings but if we kind of look at uh, elementary schools maybe middle schools high schools do you think that will be in the setting at difference between how you as a principal engage collective leadership in those three settings?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I chose high schools only because they're the largest and and most complex uh, in the United States of elementary, middle, and high school, typically. Um, So my thought was, if it can happen in a high school, it can probably happen in elementary and middle school. I do think there were some um, commonalities between the leaders. You started there with the question, and I would say all three of the leaders were very humble, kind of fine to walk alongside or walk behind, not having to be out in front or take credit for ideas. Um, And I think that's very true of the leaders I've seen in elementary and middle school where this happens. In, In order for collective leadership to take hold, you have to have someone who's willing to hold their leadership and their power with kind of open hands, where other people can step into it. And so I do think um, it might even be more common. I, 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 elementary schools typically have very st- strong faculty-led things because there's not all of the organizational complexity that a high school has. So you'll see ideas bubbling up from the classroom pretty easily in elementary schools. But again, I think that humble, um, kind of leadership stance or the humble inquiry that the leader shows um, if they're the principal assistant principal or superintendent i think that's pretty important at all three levels
0: and 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 when we talk about the collective leadership uh, you you kind of use it am i right you use it uh, that there's like a system which we all operate in and we all take leadership responsibilities and sometimes we will also do it together or Or do you mean that collective leadership is actually some fixed people kind of always sharing the leadership?
1: Uh, yeah, no, I don't think it's a fixed group. I mean, I, it, ideally, in the book, it's that like you would include students. Uh, it wouldn't just be teachers and administrators. You'd bring community people in. you bring parents in. The, big, the more, I, I sometimes refer to it as the collective expertise that you have, the more expertise you can get in the room to make key decisions, obviously not on every decision. People don't want input on every decision. But on big organizational decisions, vision strategy pieces, the more people you can bring in, the better. One of the schools actually would bring students in in the spring and they do a two-day retreat to design their school improvement plan for the following year and then the students would be integral parts of what that would look like so certainly I don't think the collective leadership group is fixed I don't want to create just another way of eliminating people from leadership uh, because we need the various skills and expertise of as many people as we can to improve the decision making in schools
0: and as I see it uh, you maybe I don't know take a phenomenological approach saying that we can think that we can uh, we can make the principal capable of doing his leadership but actually if we kind of only look purely at what is happening then it is actually that all in a school will lead and must lead but but if we then kind of follow your line of thinking that we have to enhance a collective leadership, what is then the role of the principal? Because he is still the principal and not uh, kind of like the other teachers.
1: Mm-hmm. So, again, going back to comprehensive high schools in the United States, there are so many different roles the principal has to play. That um, I was in five schools in New York State this last fall. Not they're not in this book, but one of the one of the principals, amazing principal at an amazing school, he said it was his job to make the walls of the school glass so that everyone could see the good work that was happening. So he, he, I walked around with him, and he'd go into rooms, videotape a section of the class, and then tweet out what was happening in that class to the public. They had a lot of funders and donors who had given money for a lot of STEM initiatives, the science, technology, engineering, and math. And he wanted them to see the amazing things students were doing. And so he kind of saw himself, he called himself the storyteller in chief. Uh, That it was his job to tell the story of the good work that's being done. Now clearly the principal has a huge role to play in the vision and strategy that's being implemented. You know, my definite, my simple definition for collective leadership that it's work towards shared goals is nice and simple, But the hard part of that is identifying what the shared goals are. And that's where the principal has to be involved in bringing coherence to what's going on. Otherwise, if you have 120 teachers on staff, you can have 120 different directions. And so that's where you need a strong principal. So the leadership skills of the principal have to be stronger in a collectively led building than in one that's run by a benevolent dictator. uh, Because it's not an efficient way of making decisions, it's just potentially a better way if it's cohesive and led well by a group of people and the principle has to be one of those key people. So, so, so we could say that the, the, kind of the task of the
0: principle is to have an overall view of the whole system and also to promote these kind of collective uh, processes and maybe to facilitate that
1: those who lead, they lead in a good way. That's right. That's right. So a lot of, one of the principals had moved entirely to um, staff-led faculty meetings. They met once a month. The meetings were a half an hour, and he would always start with the vision for the school. He would do that, and then he'd turn it over to the teachers. Now, he had a hand in putting the agenda together, so he knew what was coming, but that was his role to do that. Now, to lead efficiently in that way takes a lot of planning and thoughtfulness, and he really had to know his staff. But because he's freed up from trying to make all these decisions and being responsible for all these things, he can be out in the building seeing what's going on. He can be at all the events for students and he can see what's making the school distinctively different and then continue to promote that. So, yeah, I, I think there's there's other things that a principal or an administrator just has to do. I mean, there's um, discipline issues, bus schedules, building maintenance. There's a number of things that you could get some input from people that might make things run more efficiently, but largely decisions just have to be made and keep it moving. That does not, not every decision has to be collectively made. In fact, what I've been finding is it's really the instructional leadership piece that benefits the most. And that's always the part in a comprehensive high school where the principal feels the least well equipped to do it. Because how do you walk into a physics classroom, give feedback, and then walk into a Spanish classroom, give feedback, and then into an English classroom and give feedback, especially if you've never taught those subjects. And so most comprehensive high school principals have realized they need to develop the instructional leadership of others in order to lead well.
0: Okay, so so as I understand you, it's it's about to promote a culture in the school where there is collective leadership. And and, and what is needed to kind of create this culture?
1: Now, so there are seven conditions. there uh, right over there on the wall. There's the vision and strategy piece first. So that has to be clear. You need a supportive administration that can look different in different places. Um, You need resources, and part of resources is capacity. Do you have capacity in teachers to move things in the direction that you wanna go? Do they have time and space to lead well? Is the work designed in a way where they can collaborate, work together? Well, some of that can be PLCs. PLCs can either be very well loved or hated, depending on how they're implemented. Uh, And then those first four conditions will then affect these last three, which will be um, Symptoms of the quality of the first four and outgrowths of it. So, supportive social norms and working relationships, how well do people uh, work with each other? How much do they trust each other? Then, constructive organizational politics who influences whom? So are teachers influencing each other? Do teachers influence administrators? Do administrators influence teachers? Where are those uh, bridges and links? Social network analysis is super fascinating with that kind of work. And then orientation toward improvement. How willing are, they to top, how willing are teachers and administrators um, to tolerate risk? What's their level of willingness to take risks in order to improve? And how safe is it to do that in schools? And you'll see a high variability in that. And if those conditions are right, that changes development experiences, which increases capacity, improves collective leadership practice, which then should lead to student outcomes, which should then feed back into the system and continue to improve the conditions. But yeah, those seven conditions of the things, that's the way we looked at all three of the schools and then interviewed a number of teacher leaders from around the country to test the findings to see if these things resonated for them.
0: And then you have one chapter in the book called Ideal Leaders, But Not Solo Superheroes. What do you mean with that?
1: Yeah, so this is especially true for teacher leaders in the United States. Uh, I had a friend uh, who was a Teacher of the Year from Arkansas a number of years ago. He said Teachers, teacher leaders are terrible about changing shirts. They just put more shirts on without ever removing the one underneath until they're so overwhelmed with shirts that they can't move. They're kind of suffocating and, and, and immobile. And I think that's right. That that metaphor works well. You can't just keep asking the same people to do the leadership work that's needed. And so that can be true for principals. It can be true for uh, teachers. But you can't just keep going back to the same people and be that superhero leader that's the charismatic, out-front look at me that's not really an ideal way to develop leaders and it definitely isn't a good way to sustain them so the ideal leader comes alongside others and catalyzes leadership so this is the we talk about catalytic leaders and that I'm a former science teacher so I love the term catalyst because the catalyst just speeds up the reaction it's not the focus of the reaction it's not even part of it it just accelerates it so leaders in this sense the ideal leaders Speed up and improve the work of others, and so that's what great leaders do. And we see that all over the—I'm sure all over the world, but certainly all over the U.S.
0: We are going into the last—I don't know—three or four minutes of the podcast. Uh, I want to kind of try out some critique against your approach. Sure, yeah, definitely. (laughs) So, so if we have a group of teachers where you kind of try to promote collective leadership, and then the teachers will say, "Actually, no, this is not our job." you are getting the money for doing the leadership tasks. So, so actually, well, what are you trying to do here? Well, what do you say to a group of teachers who do that, took that approach?
1: That's a great, great question. So when I go in and do this work in schools, I'll go in and do professional development and work with teachers and administrators to try to promote what they're doing. Um, we always start with this. Everything we're doing here is to make your lives easier. So we're not adding work to your plate. I have them identify things that have been being done in their school for years oh, okay. that they think are inefficient and unhelpful. And they can make lists very quickly. And so when we go in, it's like, okay, we're going to identify one shared goal, two things we're going to stop doing, and three pieces of evidence that we can observe that we're making progress. So it's this one, two, three process. is as simple as it can be. But the focus, and I say, even if we just stop doing these two things that are not, core to the mission of the school. They may be good things. They may just be kicking you off mission that will improve your school. So just your input there is helpful. So I'm not doing this. This isn't adding more work to your plate. This is doing the work that you already may be doing or need to be doing. And it's giving you the ability to actually make decisions to improve what you're doing. So that's always the starting place. And if they don't see it that way, then that means we've got some, we got to back up and start helping them see like What, where leadership breakdowns make more work for them, so that it's not a we're doing the job of the principal for him or her.
0: Okay, and then I'm gonna try a second um, critique, (laughs) and and this is uh, this is a Christian uh, university, Wheaton Mm -hmm. College. Yes, and you could say, or I think actually, if we look at leadership. From a christian perspective it's a bit uh, a two-edged sword Mm -hmm. so it's both being a servant jesus kind of served his disciples but then on the other hand uh, often in in christian kind of thinking there's also a position of authority that you will actually have to respect Mm -hmm. Uh, and 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 is there a danger in this collective leadership to kind Mm -hmm. of uh, take the authority from the principal who is uh, hired to do kind of the authority position.
1: Right. Right. No, that's a great, great contrast. I do think what I see happening in the schools where collective leadership is more evident or where they're developing it, there's increased respect for each other because there's a deeper understanding of what the other does. So teachers come to respect what their administrators are doing and all the complexity of that job, where administrators come to respect the work that teachers are doing because it's They have a deeper understanding and appreciation of it and as they learn things together and they try to make better decisions together it's not lack of respect it's increased respect that leads to better decision-making because you know Tony Brake's work who's been in Chicago for years that increased relational trust Mm. is huge and that's a very Christian perspective that we Learn about each other by serving each other and by developing a deeper understanding and seeking to know them. I do think there's also another advantage to um, faith in this regard because we do have a sense that there is truth to be known. There are things that are legitimately better, and we view each other as being made in the image of a creator. It's very hard to give up on each other. You can't give up on students very easily that way. You don't give up on your colleagues very easily that way because if you believe they're made in the image of the creator, how do you just quit on them? How do you speak disrespectfully about them when they're not around? How do you undercut the work that you've done together and so i think their faith is a very helpful component in this kind of model and then you mentioned christ right away christ is the ultimate servant leader and collective leadership is a servant kind of leadership uh, in walking alongside and not having to be out in front and take credit but it's about doing the work that supports kids so
0: Yeah, it's very interesting, uh, Jonathan, but time has actually run out, and uh, yeah, so I want to thank you for participating, and then at the end, if some of my listeners maybe want to find more about your publications and what you're doing, where where can they then go on the internet to find information?
1: That's great. So I have a website. It's www.Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-M, as in Mark Eckert. Eckert is E-C-K-E-R-T. So there's definitely more there and thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me, it's great to talk with you.
0: We have come to the end of this podcast. I hope you have enjoyed the interview with a researcher in the area of schools, early childhood settings and social care settings. We have a group on Facebook. You are welcome to join us there. You can have news about podcasts and we can discuss issues being brought up in the interviews. Just go on Facebook and in the search field, search research in leadership in schools, early childhood settings and social care settings. Well, the last thing for me is just to wish you a marvelous day. Bye bye.